Welcome to season seven of PIN South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, PIN South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, PIN centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we're in solidarity with Andre Pochabot, an essayist, journalist, columnist, blogger, poet, and musician. Pochabot is a prominent Polish-Belarusian minority activist and holds dual citizenship. He's a correspondent of a Polish daily newspaper and works for several Belarusian media outlets. In February 2023, he was sentenced to eight years in prison in Belarus on spurious charges of inciting hatred and endangering the national security of Belarus. Pochabut was arbitrarily detained on 25 March 2021 and spent almost two years behind bars before his unfair sentencing. He is said to have serious health problems and to be routinely denied access to correspondence, especially in Polish. According to his family, he was recently sent to solitary confinement for seven days. The reason for this punishment is not yet known. Penn International believes that Pochabut is being targeted for his views and writings critical of the Belarusian authorities. The Polish authorities have repeatedly called for his release. Penn SA joins Penn International and Penn Belarus in calling for Andrzej Pochabut's immediate and unconditional release and for his sentencing and conviction to be overturned on appeal. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this eighth and final episode of our Black History season, Victoria Collis Butulezi asks Atambile Masola and Makosasana Klaba about researching the life and times of Noni Jabavu and their book Noni Jabavu, A Stranger at Home. They also pay tribute to the late Professor Becky Caesar Peterson, one of the co-editors of Foundational African Writers. Victoria Collis Butulezi is an associate professor in English and director of the University of Johannesburg's Center for the Study of Race, Gender, and Class. She has published in several international journals, including The Black Scholar, in which she co-edited a special issue on Black Studies in South Africa. Her current book project excavates the print cultures of Black migrants to Cape Town from the Caribbean, the US, West Africa, and other parts of South Africa before the rise of anti-colonial nationalism. The women who traveled have in many ways been, to use your terms in how you write about recuperating and being part of Noni Jababu's re-entrance into a kind of South African public consciousness are erased and silenced. But erasure and silencing means that there was presence and there was sound and speech and articulation. We're not dealing with an absence, we're dealing with the absenting. 
Atambile Masola is a writer, researcher and award-winning poet based in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. Her debut collection of poetry, Ilifa, is written in Isikosa. She is the co-author with Dr. Kolisa Kuzula of the children's history book series, Imbokoto, Women Who Shape Us. Her latest book is a collaboration with Makosa Zana Klava, a collection of Noni Jabavu's columns from 1977, A Stranger at Home. What is interesting is that my education had an investment in Eastern Cape writers, but you're not going to tell me about Noni Jabavu, right? You won't talk about the black literary lineage in the Eastern Cape. We won't talk about Lovedale Press. We won't talk about all these things that are hiding in plain sight that one way or the other lead us to the Jabavus, to the Mkhayis, to the Victoria Swat Boys and all this other literary stuff. So for me, before I can even get to thinking about transnational archives, I'm still stuck on the question of what does it mean to be hiding in plain sight and to be erased in the very geography where you are enculturated. Makosasana Klaba is an award-winning, multi-genre, anthologist and short story writer who has published four poetry collections. In 2021, she was appointed Associate Professor of Practice at the Center for Race, Gender and Class, based at the University of Johannesburg. She has pioneered research and writerly activism on Noni Jabavu for almost two decades. She holds an MA in Creative Writing from Wits University. She is the editor of Our Words, Our Worlds, writing on Black South African women poets 2000 to 2018 and she co-edited Foundational African Writers, Peter Abrams, Noni Jabavu, Sibusiso Nyembezi, and Eskiam Pachel. But the Noni situation is complicated by the fact that she falls out of the grand narrative when we talk exile. The grand South African narrative for exile is these are people who are political, they went, they were fighting, struggling all over the world, okay? Even the ones who left not as political activists, once they were positioned in exile, they started writing in a political way because, yes, they left because of political reasons, but they were just writers. But once you're in exile, then you can't escape writing about the politics of South Africa. Noni doesn't fit that mode. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to PAN South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the eighth episode of season seven. I'm Victoria and I'm honored to be talking with Atambile Masola and Makosa Zana This is a truly transatlantic conversation. Makosa Zana is in her home in Johannesburg, Atambile is in the studio in Cape Town, and I am in my parents' house in Newark, New Jersey. You might hear some background noise during the conversation as life goes on around us. But today's conversation will include Atambile and Makosazana, each reading an extract from their introduction to Noni Jabavu, A Stranger at Home. So I want to begin by asking both Atambile and Makosazana how you came to Noni Jabavu's work? I came to Noni Jabavu's work in 2001 when I found her first book, Drawn in Color, 
from a secondhand bookstore in Melville. So I read the book, connected with it at many levels. It was next to my bed for the longest time. And because John in Color was published in 1960, I stupidly assumed that she had died because I had never heard of her. And I'm a big, big reader. I'm a, I'm a reader of note. So a part of me was irritated, angry, you know, but that was it. It was 2001. And then come 2002, I get an email from Tembi Mbobo that was addressed to a lot of us that she knew, writers, because at the time she was running an organization called Women in Writing out of Soweto. And the email said, Noni Jabahu is coming back to South Africa. Virginia Piri, a writer from Zimbabwe, will be accompanying her. Can you please help us trace her family? She had the date, the 5th of May, 2002. She had flight details because Victoria had been working with Noni and the lawyer to make things happen. And there I was thinking, wow, she's coming to South Africa, the person whose book I just read the year before. So that was my initial interest. And then come 2004, I'm doing my master's in creative writing. And one of the essays we needed to write in the first semester was a biographical essay. And we were told we must focus on a day in the life of da, 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 da. And because on the 5th of May, 2002, when Oni returned, I was in Kenya, I decided, wow, just go back to that day. It took that research for me to realize that it wasn't just me who hadn't heard about Noni. She wasn't Googleable mm. in 2004. Yes, there were things on her father, DDT Jabavu. There were things on her grandfather, John Tengo Jabavu. And I got angrier and angrier and did the research so I could write the essay. So I ended up writing the kind of essay that had more questions than answers. And the way we worked in that master's class is that everybody would read everybody's draft and then you come together and you give one another feedback. So it was during the time when I was giving that feedback that everybody just said, oh, of course you need to write more about this person. Mm -hmm. Nobody in class had heard about that person. So that's how my journey began. And <laughs> as you can hear, 2004 is almost 20 years ago. <laughs> it's been a very long journey. I'll end there for now. Yeah, the reason why I kind of indicated Kosi should go first is that my journey goes via Kosi in a sense, because I was writing for the Daily Dispatch when I was in my third year. And I was submitting sporadic columns to the Daily Dispatch. And it kind of coincides with my coming to thinking more about black women writing. More generally, I was majoring in literature, but also specifically to public writing columns in the Mail and Guardian and so on. And so it was around the time someone had also said to me, black women don't really write. And so all of that is happening at the same time. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm writing. So this is very weird for you to say black women don't really write, but I'm literally standing in front of you kind of thing. And so I'm writing the columns for the Daily Dispatch and I'm thinking about the history of surely there must have been other black women who have done this before me. And that's around 2008, 2009. 
And to the point that Kosi is making about being Googleable. So by the time I'm engaging with her work, she is Googleable because Kosi's done some of that work already. And so I find out that Jabavo had written in the Daily Dispatch. I can't even remember what the first article was or how I made that connection, but I remember Googling black woman writers and she was part of the list that had come up. And of course, at this time, yes, I've read Daughters of Africa, but there's something about South African women that had somehow been missing. So I've had Daughters of Africa. My sister and I had gone crazy about it a few years before Margaret Busby's book. We had found a library copy. And so the first time I physically hold a copy of Noni Jabavo in my hands, I'm now probably my honors, I want to say honors or masters, because I was at a writing retreat organized by WASA, which was the Women Academics Association at Rhodes, which was postgraduate students as well as academics. And we would go on these writing retreats. And one of the places that we went to was a monastery just outside what is now Makanda. And I'm mosing about, and they've got like this really tiny little library, kind of a few shelves. And there was Drawn in Color, or at least one of the books. I can't remember it was Oka People Drawn in Color. And I asked them if I can borrow this book. And it was very elaborate because at this point I have to decide that I'm not going to steal it and keep it for myself. Because it was so tempting to do that. Because it is just, I'm like, where else am I ever going to find this book? And that kind of moment, because that you have like, oh my gosh, it exists. Because at that point, even though I've found her and she's on Google, I've never actually seen a tangible copy of her work. And I feel like it was karma that I gave back the book and it was karma that I eventually found two copies of her book also in a secondhand shop in Melville. And that was the first time I could own and read those copies. And when I found both of them, The Oka People and Drawn in Color, that was also around the same time I was thinking about doing a PhD. And it just felt like this is the moment that I'd kind of been waiting for because I was like, am I going to do a PhD in education? Am I going to do it in literature? And that made the decision for me. So yeah, that's how I come to Noni Jabavu. Mm. So Noni Jabavu brings you from education or makes helps you make that decision. I have a lot of questions in terms of what you both just shared, but I want to give you an opportunity to share your extracts and then come back to what you've set us up with by way of your extracts. Kosi, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. So maybe what I should have said when I ended my earlier contribution is that for the master's then, I ended up choosing to do a biographical thesis. So a lot of the research that went into producing that master's was now my journey towards her work. This is semester four, and I ended up writing three chapters that were about her life. The one being based on her return home to East London. And the other chapter was on her time at the New Strand magazine as an editor. And then the other chapter was on her work on the Daily Dispatch, because one of the things I then found when the research began was these articles that were at the Johannesburg Library. So, I'm going to read from the main introduction, well, the second page. Who were Noni Jabavu's peers in South Africa, in the South Africa of the 1960s, when she edited the New Strand magazine? Nicolette Ferreira provides a very useful entry point in her thesis, titled Grace and the Township's Housewives, 
excavating South African black women's magazines from the 1960s. Ferreira notes, open quotes, between 1965 and 1969, most politically oriented magazines produced by the black press in South Africa were silenced as a result of apartheid restrictive measures. This was, however, a time when black women's magazines could become more prominent as they were viewed by the apartheid government authorities as apolitical and thus less of a threat to their political agenda. The 1960s witnessed the birth of two magazines, Grace from October 1964 to December 1966, and The Township's Housewife from February 1968 to April 1969, which, open quotes, appear to be the first women's magazines in South Africa aimed specifically at black women. Close quotes, and again, I quote Ferreira. The women who wrote for these magazines were known as peers in her country of birth. Although both magazines were white owned and driven by profit, they constituted a platform where African women expressed their needs and aspirations. Interestingly, there was a letters page in Grace titled, I write what I like. Readers wrote whatever they wanted to say, which creates, and I quote Ferreira, a platform for us to start considering the link between grace and the awakening of black consciousness in the early 1960s, close quotes. The list of black women's names continues to point to the need to excavate more writings by black women and to demonstrate that the male domination of the black press in the 1950s and 1960s was not left unchallenged. Noni Jababu's columns were written in a decidedly personal style, what she called personalized journalism. In a letter to a friend in 1978, Noni mentioned her plans to compile her columns into a book. She wanted to revise the columns slightly so that they were less casual and conversational and instead took on a more narrative and literary tone. The publication of this book is therefore a realization of Noni's dreams. So I want to add that, well, she died before she could do the revisions she was keen on doing. I end there. Thank you, Marco Sazana. Atambile. So I'm going to read what seems like one of the shorter columns, and maybe I'll read, I might read all of it. Let's see. So this one is from the 3rd of August, 1977. Law I hate, books I like. If you have been away from your mother country for longer than a lifetime, two lifetimes, as I myself have been, there are some things that would surprise or hurt you deeply. The Group Areas Act. When I arrived back in 1975 and again in 1976, I coincided with the arrivals from England of three of my closest friends. Such close people to me, you could call them, as I call them in Iskosa, Abandubam, my people. For they are my white mother, her son, and our friend, who is an English actress. None of us was aware of the Group Areas Act, 
let alone what it would mean to us as individuals. How we learned our lesson was like this, and deeply hurtful and humiliating. My white mother is Lady Norman, widow of Lord Montague, the chairman of the Bank of England during the 1930s. I am her black daughter. Our connection was through the banking world. When I was a young child in England at that time, I was in that world through no fault of my own. Lady Norman, my mother, who gave him permission to call her by her name Priscilla, and one of her sons, Peregrine Walsthorne, who is therefore my brother, Perry, and our friend, Moira Fraser, whose husband was my close friend a lifetime ago before she married him, were unable to meet me when we coincidentally found ourselves in South Africa. Why? Because in South Africa, we were classified under one or other of the sections of the Group Areas Act as black or white. We are different ethnically and therefore not allowed to sleep in the same house or eat together at the same table, let alone be seen through the window of some restaurant eating at the same table by a law enforcement officer. The duty of a South African policeman is to see that Christians of different ethnic groups, colors, don't mix, don't do anything together. They must be apart at all times. So Priscilla Norman, her son Peregrine Walsthorne, Moira Fraser, and Noni Jabavo were unable to see each other in this Republic of South Africa, which is Noni's mother country. We were not allowed, for it is against the National Party's law. How about that? So we had to wait until we were in a different Western Christian democratic country in which God rules a different law and allows his children to behave according to his rules. It is only in the Republic of South Africa that Priscilla, Moira, Noni and Peregrine are not allowed to mix. If you are a writer, as I am, you cannot understand how people who wish to write or say they could if they had the time don't read books. To read books is the life and drink of a writer who means business. Even if you don't publish a book for a long time, as I myself haven't, you must continue to read and read. You absolutely have to. You can't help yourself. Otherwise, you might as well stop breathing. I usually read and reread two novels by Arnold Bennett, The Old Wives' Tale and Clayhanger. Magnificent books, so jolly, humorous, and such wonderful observation of human behavior. The older you get, the more you learn from rereading them every year. And I am jolly elderly now, nearer 60 than 16. So you can understand that I need and I'm getting sustenance from Arnold Bennett's novels. Also, of course, I read my concise English dictionary, my Swahili dictionary, my Kosa grammar books by my grandfather's friend, McLaren. Those are my staple diet. But what I am reading now, you ask? I'm devouring the Frank Muir book, which is subtitled An Irreverent Companion to Social History. Have you dipped into it? If not, why not? We South Africans should learn more than we know about our social circumstances. The only way we can do this is by reading such books as this. And guess what else? My father's biography of his father, the life of John Dengo Jabavu by DDT Jabavu. I had heard of it and probably seen it or the spine of its book at home when I was a youngster in my parents' house in the Eastern Cape before I was carried off to England at the age of 13 years. Now, something like 45 years later, 
I've returned to South Africa for the purpose of writing a biography of my father. On hearing of my presence in RSA and my purpose, someone sent me this mint condition copy out of the blue, and it is riveting. All of us South Africans should read it, as well as the books I've mentioned. Wow. The two things that really stood out for me from what you read, Kosi, and one was as you were reading the letter section as titled, I write what I like. And of course, we come to what is considered sort of one of the most known lines in relation to Black consciousness, but who it's attributed to. I had questions for both of you around feminist labor and gender and intellectual work, but I'm maybe going to bring that forward somewhat now in terms of that work of what I think you're both involved in that's discovery and recovery around questions of Black South African intellectual life and women and women's work. So just going back to the letter section in Grace that was titled, I Write What I Like. And so you were quoting from the Ferreira in terms of the connection to Black consciousness and the role that women played in that. So if you could bring us back to that and then this personalized journalism that I'm wondering if they're connected. When I was reading so I could write this introduction, my interest was doing that to contextualize Noni by looking at South Africa at the time she was writing for the New Strand, looking at South Africa when she was writing for the Daily Dispatch as a way of trying to understand where women were at. And so this is how I landed on this thesis. And the reason I bring that <laughs> particular quote into this introduction is because I was also a bit taken aback. I thought, oh, so <laughs> what are the connections? We know the book I write, what I like, is attributed to Stephen Bigo. Does he ever say where he got those words from? I mean, I've got the copy. I haven't returned to it since I wrote the introduction, but I'm very curious about whether he ever acknowledges that because What's clear is that the magazines were publicly available and people could write them when they want. And I can imagine that a lot of women must have written a lot to the editor of this particular section, I write what I like. This was the idea that women could just be free. Because if we read about what was happening in the other magazines and how men were writing about women, we recognize the significance of having a reader's column that says, I write what I like, not what, and this is now me in my head, men want me to write, not what men think I'm only capable of writing, you know? So there's something very powerful about reading about the fact that those magazines were available in the 1960s. I had never heard of them until I did this research. So then the connection for me to that is my curiosity about, okay, so who are these women in the 1960s? And 
I lay that out in that introduction based on Nicolette's work. But coming back to the personalized journalism in Collins, I get a sense that when she said that in the letter, the letter was to Gail Wordsworth, somebody who had approached me in 2008 asking me to confirm that I was working on a biography because she had read about me online somewhere. And then we ended up talking for a very long time and she contributed a whole package of letters that Noni had written to her. So it was to Gail that she says this about personal journalism and wanting to refine it. Now, why was she writing personal journalism? I don't know if that's the question, but the point for me is about the fact that she was here to do highly time-consuming work because she was researching towards a biography of her father. She was also working on her own autobiography. So when Donald Woods approaches her to write those columns, it feels to me like it was easy to say, okay, I'll write them, more personal stuff, you know, because I have things to share. And the kind of stuff that I'm gonna share is something that I'm ready to share at this point because I'm keeping the rest for my autobiography. And so there was also that uh, deliberate effort to be casual for a column that's coming out weekly in a newspaper, which is a very different thing to, for instance, the work that she was doing for The Strand. Mm -hmm. She was editing and having to read other people's work, having to give them feedback. It's a very different approach to how you write. Okay. Thank you for that, Nakotazana. I think I heard personalized slightly differently as a kind of bringing the personal into the public sphere and the political work that could or perhaps might do. And so I wonder then if Fatambile, given that you read from a piece of Noni's that appeared in the dispatch, if you want to sort of take us through, because it's so wide ranging, right? It goes from the sort of intimate, personal kind of found family details into a reading of what the inability of practicing that found family in South Africa signifies. Yeah, I think she's straddling so many so many elements of, I guess, the personal, because the very first article by Peter Kenny is an introduction to her. And so by the time the readers come to her, she's already been introduced. She doesn't get an opportunity to introduce herself in that way. The first article is Noni Jababu Comes Home, and we include that article by Peter Kenny. And so the sense of who is she, the personalized, and who is this person is always there. And throughout the columns, there is this thread of her at times kind of belaboring who she is and how her readers are reading her. So, for example, she then explains, I think the very first article after Peter Kenny's introduction is her explaining her arrival. So this kind of need to explain who she is is always there, even while she wants to write about music, she wants to write about books that she loves, she wants to write about her friends, she wants to write about 
there's almost like methodological things about being a writer, technical things about being a writer. I mean, this one ends with, if you want to be a good writer, um, read. And this kind of advice to readers is often quite curtailed with explaining herself. So at times, there are columns where she begins by, many of you have been asking me questions. So she's then also fielding, you get a sense that she's also in conversation with her readers, they're writing her letters, and she's fielding those questions as well, because columns are a conversation one way or the other. And I think the personalized racism, racism, what am I thinking about? I had personalized racism that I'm still thinking about. Sorry, Freudian slip. The personalized journalism, but there is definitely racism in the articles as well. Is this, this, this conversation that she's now being thrust into with her readers, with herself. And for me, I think it makes for a varied voice of Noni Jababa because you get a variation of her interests, you get a variation of her life. You also get a sense that she's quite at pains to tell her readers about this other world that she's been in because she's been away for two or three generations, as she says. And this continues in the 1982 preface of the Oka people, where she's quite laborsome about the fact that many of you would not know who I am. And so I'm here to introduce myself. I'm like a grandmother coming back and, and, and talking to her children. And I think even this position of her being quite open about her age, being quite open about the experiences that she's had, is wanting perhaps to be personable, but also realizing that she is in a very different world. And a lot of her readers, in fact, don't understand who she is. So it's, it feels like she constantly has to dig deep into her kind of own personal archive in order for people to, to fully understand her, even while she wants to write about Wom Yan Smuts, even while she wants to write about the arrival back to South Africa or her friends, Nat King Cole, etc. So for me, it just opens up, I think, a varied sense of topics that she could do and that perhaps it is that the personal is political and that it's through her personal stories like the the, the story that she shares about not being able to see Perry and Moira and Priscilla is that it then becomes very political without her even belaboring that it's political. And I think she does the same thing in the in the column Smuts and I, which is another favorite that I often toss up against, is that she doesn't belabor who Jan Smuts is. It's kind of taken for granted that we all know who this political figure is. But she writes about him in retrospect from her first encounter with him as a child and this world that she was part of and this world that was actually overtly political that people in the trans guy and cis guy seem to not know much about anymore because of what apartheid has done one way or the other in terms of segregating people. I'll end there. Wow. You know, something that thinking about Noni Jababu in the ways that you both have framed her, but also listening to you today, do you think it is maybe pushing it too far to say that there's something gendered about the ways in which the impossibility, quote unquote, as in scare quotes, because I don't necessarily believe it. But I'm just thinking about the ways in which you, in that piece in Biza, how you frame it in terms of the silencing and the erasure of Noni Jabavu. Is there something gendered about the supposed impossibility of her person 
right? That this is someone who, when we think about South Africa and South Africans abroad and at home through the 50s, before the 50s, but definitely the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the idea of being away from home, right? Being in exile is ever present, yet it sounds as though there's a way in which Noni Jabavu is constantly being asked to explain herself almost in terms of why have you been away? So I'm wondering if for both of you or either of you, there is an element to this that has to do with the ways in which women and Black women in particular are, were expected to operate in the world and in terms of geography as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it operates at all those levels, the level of gender in the way that generally women are not seen for who they are. Even if men see what women do, there's a way of minimizing that, not giving it the value that it has. So that is general in the way that men see women's lives and therefore they are writing. But the Noni situation is complicated by the fact that she falls out of the grand narrative when we talk exile. Mm. The grand South African narrative for exile is these are people who are political. They went, they were fighting, struggling all over the world. Okay. Even the ones who left not as political activists, when once they were positioned in exile, they started writing in a political way because, yes, they left because of political reasons, but they were just writers. But once you're in exile, then you can't escape writing about the politics of South Africa. Noni doesn't fit that mode. So that's layer number two. Layer number three, most of the writings that we see about people who lived abroad and I'm going to use this language deliberately, lived abroad and lived in exile. And I want to frame the exile as part of the grand narrative. But even for people who lived abroad, what we often hear is conversations or writings about them or by them as adults, because that was when they went abroad. Whereas Noni leaves South Africa at the age of 13 to go to high school. And that's not a narrative we often hear about. And because she couldn't come back home after World War II, and because by now she's married to a white person, her life is, she, she comes into adulthood as already a black British person. Now, when you look at writings about being black and British, the writings that have come up more recently, even journals that focus on the diaspora. They are more recent journals, right? They were not writing about Noni's time. And that for me is the point that the way that Noni's life story is different is because we're seeing it through a lens of what is broad and grand and written about more often. I would be very interested, for instance, to see and hear about Black women who left South Africa 
in the 1930s as teenagers? What were their lives like? Where did they go? What was happening? You know, that kind of thing. So we don't see those stories very often. Well, I, I'm not aware of a story like that. I mean, the Rilda, for instance, who was also from the Eastern Cape, left to go to the U.S. and she studied there. But I haven't seen details of her story. So there's also that level. And then there's the class level. And when I talk about the class level, I want to start when she was still in South Africa because what is important for me in understanding and contextualizing Noni's life is to understand that she was born with the world at her doorstep. Why do I say that? 1916 is the year the South African Native College, later to be known as Forte, that's the year it starts. Noni is not born yet. Three years later, she's born. So in her childhood, at her home, the world was there. Her father, the people her father taught with, the students from all over the continent and from abroad. So she is born and raised before she's a teenager into a world that is the world, if you know what I mean. So... The fact that she goes abroad and continues to live in that kind of bubble of upper class worldly people is not of her doing. But what we need to know, what we need to accept and what we need to be ready to do is to understand that context and what it means instead of trying to box her within the black elite, you know, and what Christianity did to them and all that kind of language. So when Noni goes abroad, she's with the white family who are Quakers. How do we talk about Quakerism in South Africa? Do we even go there? What does it mean to talk about the politics of Quakerism within South Africa as a way to try and understand Noni? Now, she also says somewhere in her writings that I wasn't a Quaker in that big kind of way, but I was raised amongst them. So I feel like I've gone, <laughs> I've wandered away, but I was trying to answer your question as a way of saying that there are many layers that are connected that we need to take into consideration when we try and understand her life. I don't think you've wandered away. I think you really brought us to what is so striking about such a life and what is also so vital to building a complete picture of what it means and what it meant to exist across South Africa and to exist in connection to South Africa. There's the transatlantic element, but to your point, there's also the extent to which the world existed within South Africa, within many different locations, right? And so to even push us towards thinking about the cosmopolitanism of a fort here, Anoni emerging in that milieu and to not try to flatten it into, exactly. you know, whether black elite, black Christian elite, but to begin thinking about the complications of that and how people circulated. Atambile, do you want to come in with this question as well? Yeah, I think there's so many layers. And as Kosi was speaking, I was also thinking about 
the world that Noni also grows up in is one that isn't unfamiliar with women in public who are public facing. So her mother is being written about by Lomo in Umteteli Wabando about a speech that she does at one of the social clubs in Johannesburg. So her mother is traveling, her mother is speaking publicly. Her aunt, Daisy Makiwane, was one of the first journalists in Imvozabansundu when it was established. Her other aunts, kind of peripheral to the family, one not even peripheral, they are her relations, is someone like Frida Matthews, who in fact, one of the ways I also come into thinking about the world around Noni is when Frida Matthews is in London in 1935 and writes about that in the Bantu world in South Africa, and it is published in South Africa, and she writes about having tea with Noni, but also the article is about meeting all these other Africans while she is in London. Now, I can't imagine maybe Noni would have picked that article up to be like, oh, look, my aunt wrote about it. But the fact that she has this person in her life who is aware of her position as well as Frida Matthews, who is in London with her husband, Professor Z.K. Matthews, that is in her world sense. Someone like Pumla Ngozwana, who becomes Pumla Chisosongole, is also part of that world, who is writing for the Bantu world, writing and speaking at Inanda Seminary and writing in the Bantu world, the emancipation of women. And even when she goes and lives in Uganda, continues writing and showing up publicly. So when I began to make those links about who are the women that Noni would be looking up to, and even Rolda Mata, who Kosi mentioned, who goes to America and comes back and writes this article in the Bandu world about her experiences abroad. Those are people who are within two, three, one degree of Noni Jababu's life. So when she is put in the situation where it looks like she has to explain herself, I think it's quite jarring given her earlier life. That one, she had the whole world at her doorstep, but two, she had all these women who she can kind of emulate or riff off as people who are in the world, who are active in the world. I imagine when she was in England, someone like Pumlangwazona Chisasongkole, they would have been meeting up perhaps as relations or homegirls living abroad. And so this tension that Kosi is drawing about the distinction of living abroad and living in exile, it is this question about grand narratives, but also experiences that we then want to flatten because we don't want to talk enough about what it meant to be living abroad, perhaps outside. No, no, and I don't know if anyone can ever be outside of the grand narrative in that way, but outside of what we think of when we hear living in exile or what we think we know about what it means to live in exile and what it means to live abroad. And that in fact, we ought to be thinking more about people who left because they were going to study abroad or left because they were visiting family abroad. Even in that interwar period, there was so much movement. And so what does 1948 perhaps do with that movement? And what does 1960 do with that movement? And then how we are made to think about what we know about movement in those early years. And I think that's why the interwar period for me is so fascinating, particularly in relation to black women, not only in, in South Africa, but in other parts of the world as well. In that article I mentioned with Frida Matthews being in London, writing to the readers in the Bandu world, she is making lists of women from Sierra Leone who are 
studying to become barristers in London and who are going to go back home. There's another book. I can see the cover, but my brain has gone blank. It's a blue and black cover. That's all I'm getting. But it writes about Nigerian women who were studying in England in the early 20th century. And so even this movement of back and forth, what does that mean? Who is able to come back as Noni does to bury her brother and then coming back in 1976 and then coming back in 1977 again? There is a porousness, even as we're now thinking about exile as a one-way route, right? You're out, you don't get your return permit or your return ticket or your passport is no longer returned to you. But there's a movement for people like Noni Jababu. There's a movement for people like Frida Matthews. There's a movement for people like Pumla Chisosongole. How do we explain that? Is it class, perhaps? Is it a certain kind of political privilege that they then gain because they are living abroad and they have different kind of documents? I mean, there are various ways of thinking about it. But for me, that's where Noni Jababa becomes so important for me in thinking about movement, in thinking about the transnational, in thinking about the circulation because sometimes we think it's one way until a particular point and then people come back. And then what happens when people are coming in and out and not even in and out are going via Uganda, via Jamaica, via Paris, via Mexico, via Italy, as Noni Jababu and some of the people that I've mentioned already. And comfortably so, perhaps even taking it for granted that they are doing that and then writing about it as well. There's so many more questions that I want you to answer, but I wonder if perhaps we could have another session for <laughs> now. <laughs> These questions around what work does that travel and movement and the itinerants do in terms of subject making and self-making and what they write but there's also the element, I think, of how so much of these circulations have been gendered male, so that part of the public work is gendered male. So the women who traveled have in many ways been, to use your terms in how you, you write about recuperating and allowing or being part of Noni Jababu's re-entrance into a kind of South African public consciousness are erased and silenced. But erasure and silencing means that there was presence and there was sound and speech and articulation. We're not dealing with an absence, we're dealing with the absenting. So I think this is a conversation that we can go on with well past this. So... I want to shift to the reference, Makosazana, that you make. So Atambile has told us about the different places that Noni Jabavu went to and also then made returns, and not only Noni, made returns to South Africa and other parts of the continent and had exchanges across. So Atambile, you were speaking of Uganda, Jamaica, for instance, Sierra Leone came up as well. And in this 2019 piece in Johannesburg Review of Books, and I'm just going to quote, in 2007, Makosazana writes, I undertook trips to the United Kingdom, Jamaica, Kenya, Uganda, 
and Zimbabwe. And in 2018, while on a trip to the United States, I was led to an archive in New York that has useful material correspondence between Noni's father, Davidson Don Tango Jabavu, and leader Clanton Bronner, an African-American who had visited South Africa in 1938. So I am fascinated by these kinds of movements and as it would happen, I'm in my parents' home and not in Johannesburg, where I typically am, my parents' home in Newark, New Jersey. So I was intrigued by this Newark connection. And in some ways, it's a U.S. city that's often overshadowed by New York, even though it is very important in terms of kind of national and global Black cultural and political expression. So I just wondered if you want to talk about this discovery and if maybe both of you could speak to the geographies that you've covered following Noni, the geographies that she covered, and as someone myself deeply invested in kind of excavating Black transatlantic and global archives, if you want to speak to the question of archives, recovery, retrieval in the work that you've been doing individually, but also this very collaborative work that you've been doing around Noni Jabavu. Mm. Yeah, I'm very happy to talk about this discovery because it was just one of the most exciting and most serendipitous discoveries because I was going to the U.S. for something else. It was when Queer Africa had been shortlisted for the NAMDA Awards. And on Facebook, I see a post by somebody who works at the Newark Museum, and they're talking about Lida Clinton Bronner, who was who came to South Africa in 1938. So I immediately DM'd her, and I thought, I'm going to have to go to those Newark. At that time, I didn't even know where it was in the U.S. I just knew it was in the U.S. And when it turns out that it's so close to where I was, I just took a train and went there only to discover the gold that was letters between DDT Jabavu and Lida. I'm trying to find words for it, but the point is, the point we're making earlier about the movement of South Africans into the world, we also don't often hear about the movement of African-Americans that early on into the continent. For Lida, she had decided that she wants to go to South Africa. I mean, we hear about it now, you know, but in those times, who else was doing those movements? So Lida had met with DDT while he was traveling the year before. And then there's this excitement and, okay, you need to come to South Africa. So Lida had also fostered Rilda when she was in the U.S., so there are all these letters starting just before she arrives because DDT ends up taking the responsibility of assisting with the formalities of, you know, visas, forms, this and this permit. But that their communication lasts until, I don't remember the exact year now, but it was post the death of Noni's mother. And the other piece of gold that I find there is the understanding that when Lida returns to the U.S. after being in South Africa for 
I think she was here for a month or two. She goes via London and Noni, who was at Birmingham at the time, comes to meet with her because the father had said, oh, my friend, this auntie is going to be traveling past London. Make sure you go and see her. And for me, what was also very interesting is that as the years moved on and their letters continued, DDT is talking to Lida and the three letters by Noni's mom in this folder where she's talking to Lida and they're talking as parents. It's like our daughter, this and this and this, our daughter is getting married, na, 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 na. And I just thought, wow, how fascinating. So the idea of the work that Atambile is doing, of looking at women who are traveling abroad, for me is also about how do we talk about women who are coming to South Africa? What are their interests? What do they end up doing? Lida, for instance, ended up coming to the Transvaal <laughs> because she needed to see all the black people who were doing these interesting things. And I think she met with Charlotte Matlake at some point. There were many meetings that were organized for her. The welcome party was massive because it was like, wow, an African-American is coming to South Africa. So all of those connections that would have more visibility if they were men, are they? So what does it mean to excavate them? What does, what's the work that needs to go in there? Being at Newark Museum and know, learning about what she ended up collecting when she was in South Africa, she was interested in the art that women were making, the crafts that women were making. So she ended up donating some of that to the museum. So was there a journal about diaspora, cross-continental diasporas at that time? No. But thank goodness for these letters. We now have a little bit of a window into what that looked like. And I believe there's a book coming out on her life because the archivist who was working there when she found out about her started being so interested, tracked down the family, and she's been working on Lida's biography. Mm, I think it's out in the US at least. Is it out already? Yeah, Mr. Clark, yeah. Because he maps out the transnational countries that she visited. But what was interesting for me and my relationship with Noni Jababo was the experience of feeling like she's hiding in plain sight. So the fact that I'm from East London and uh, I was re reading and writing a newspaper that was very much linked to who she was, but kind of had no sense of that kind of general knowledge. The fact that Etikeni, Alice, where she was from, is a stone's throw away from East London. The fact that the old age home where she passes away was in walking distance to my extra maths lesson. So, the, And the fact that I was at a university where she was based for a spell while writing her father's biography, it all kind of just felt so close. And yet so far, because she had never been part of my education. And what is interesting is that my education had an investment in Eastern Cape writers, but we would be told about Olive Schreiner, Olive Schreiner, who visited Noni Jababu's home, right? So you can tell me about Olive Schreiner. You understand that the Eastern Cape girls should be knowing about a woman who is a writer in this geography and time. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to tell me about Noni Jababu, right? You can tell me about who's the woman with the owl house. I'd have just forgotten her name. Miss Helen. 
I can't now remember her, her surname, but she was this artist in New Bethesda. She did cement sculptures of owls. Her house was called the Owl House. And our school had an investment of going to the Owl House. So there's a sense of we want young women to know about artists who are women. And we will invest in a tour that they must go. But you won't go to the Jabavu home in Alice. You won't talk about the black literary lineage in the Eastern Cape. We won't talk about Lovedale Press. We won't talk about all these things that are hiding in plain sight that one way or the other lead us to the Jabavus, to the Mkhayis, to the Victoria Swart Boys and all this other literary stuff. So for me, before I can even get to thinking about transnational archives, I'm still stuck on the question of what does it mean to be hiding in plain sight and to be erased mm. in the very geography where you are enculturated. And then the beauty, though, of having then found Noni Jababu and thinking about the transnational archive is that she becomes a gateway for me being interested in people like Pumlango Zwana, becomes Pumla Chiso Sonkole. And I'm now face to face with that very same thing of in order to understand Pumlango Zwana, who leaves South Africa in the 1930s, goes to Uganda, but is also found in, in, in France, but is also studying in the UK. Same WhatsApp group different time. And it's almost like now I'm thinking, well, we can't understand the South African archive or what we think of as a South African archive without thinking about the transnational archive and the tools and the resources that we need to be able to do this work that people do not talk about when we want to then start talking about the transnational archive and the connections and the solidarities and the collaborations and the money that is needed money. to take this work seriously like and that's another episode about the money behind this research when you want us to do this work i mean i could go on we'll never fully understand ourselves actually if we don't do that work of transnational archives and it's thanks to noni jababu for me that i'm able to make those connections i have many responses but i'm gonna leave it i think that's work that people like you, people like Kosi and myself are doing, but also how we think about harnessing resources collectively towards that kind of work and agenda is central. I couldn't agree with you more. I think this is the time that sadly, well, Wonderfully, we do our tributes, but sadly, we're wrapping up because I've really enjoyed being in conversation with these two phenomenal thinkers, actors, creators, Makusa Zanankaba and Atambili Masola. So for the tribute section, the empty chair for this episode is Belarusian, Polish writer and journalist, Andre Pozhobot. He is currently serving an eight-year prison sentence in Belarus for his work as a journalist covering life in Belarus. So I'm going to hand over to Atambile and Makosazana to each read your tributes to Andre. And we are also dedicating tributes to the late Professor Becky Zizwe Peterson. Okay, so for our writer, our empty chair writer, I was going to read from Lani Wale Serote's 
Third World Express. And it was first published in 1997. And to much to my surprise, the fifth impression came out last year. It's one long poem, but I'm going to read just an extract from it. Let them see in our gate, which is shaped by our love for life, the defiance and hatred of the wealthy who abscess this earth with ghettos and shanty towns, with prejudice and bombs and guns. Let them read in our face and pick from our world hope. Let them, as the child does, crawl, stand, hold on to human civilization. The wealth of the human race, of the time and space lived by generations of man. Let them utter their first word, no. Let the multitudes from the shanties of time, of history, of culture, hold onto the helm and horizon of time. And in the loudest voice, which will blow the TV, newspapers and radio, blow them to utter silence. Let the multitudes of this time say, stop. So I decided I'll do my tribute to the journalists by reading a poem by Lindiwe Mabuza from her book, Footprints and Fingerprints. It was published in 2008 by Picador Africa, an imprint of Penn Macmillan. Lindiwe Mabuza is known for her poetry, but she's also known for having been very deliberate about the use of culture in activism in the world when she was in exile as part of the ANC. And when she returned to South Africa, she became a very well-regarded ambassador. So the poem I chose is titled Voices That Lead. When we want to reach voices calling from the mountaintop, and we stand at the edge of this abyss, clawed almost bottomless by the monster's crimes and our own looming fears. The mind's instinct will invoke each muscle so that with the ardor of lovers twined into priceless marble, humanity's best chords harness us, span us to resume this ancient march. But we must unshoe our feet, let thorns and sharp clip, splintered rock and shards bleed out our flat-footedness steadily till skips and lips confront these hurdles that launch the peaks closer beyond the mirage. From the plateau of deception alluring a fang possessed. Some petrifying hiss under the rock that wants to spill venom on our will, bend us into submission or kill resistance from us. It is again those voices that gird our loins, enable us to sight at the crossing, the instinct mind the parent life, the child, our time.
Thank you, Makosasana. Atambile. My tribute to Prof. Peterson is about, I guess, the first time I was in an academic context. It was my honors year. The very first academic symposium or colloquium that I was part of was the Eskiampachele postgraduate colloquium held at WITS that Prof. Peterson and some postgrad students had organized. I think Chris Omar was involved in that. That's where I first met him. And what was so profound for me, I mean, if you imagine like an honors student who's writing her first paper for the very first time, and the way in which the colloquium was structured was that all the people who I'd basically been referencing in my life were now in the room and were commenting on our paper. So it was inverted. It was the first time I saw a colloquium that was inverted, where in a sense, Prof. Peterson and the organizers invite their friends to come and listen to these honors and master's students. So Liz Gunner responded to my paper and I'd been reading and writing, kind of thinking through Liz Gunner's work. Pumla Kola was chairing our session. Jane Starfield was in the room. Isabel Hofmeyer was in the room. Prof. James Okude might have been there. But all these people that you ever read about are now here to listen to you. And I thought it was the trippiest thing. I went to that colloquium twice. And it, one, changed my relationship with academia because it made academia feel like a safe place because it wasn't the kind of grandstanding that people often spoke about, but it was a very collegial space with all the people that, quote unquote, are like the people that we look up to, like our intellectual crushes in a sense. But here they were in the room, really engaged with the work. And as I say, I only went to two, I don't know how long that colloquium continued, but it was one of those moments that I circled back to when I came back into academia years later, because that was the texture of an academic life that I wanted for myself because I'd seen it being emulated before. So even in the person that Prof was himself, there was no this kind of grandstanding and just the the relationship that he built with students, whether they were VIT students or students from other places. I was studying at Rhodes, for example, and there were students from UKZN. And many of the students that I met at that colloquium, that very first one, are now mostly, in fact, are still teaching. So Tulani Mkize, for example, who roped me into the very first one, is now at UKZN. Chris Omar is at UCT. Minesh Das, I think, was at Rhodes at some point. Andy Carolyn, I think, was at UNISA. Yolisa King, who is now at UP. And it was this cohort. And I think it was because of that intentionality of having been in this community as young as we were in our honors that filtered at least for me, it did the fact that we're still kind of in touch one way or the other. So that's, I think, the tribute for me is this kind of foresight that Prof had in cultivating, and that was the intention of cultivating a cohort of the next generation of academics, in a sense. So then to be part of the foundational African writers for me, and he's one of the editors, and Kos is one of the editors, and Quiz is one of the editors, was another kind of hallmark of this journey that he had unfolded for us one way or the other. So I guess I wanted to share that as my tribute to say he kind of laid the foundation for what I have come to expect and want as part of an intellectual life is that it's one of community and that it's one of extending ourselves and it's not one of humiliating people because I know that academia has that texture. It's not one of grandstanding, but it's about generosity um, and it's about 
yeah, community that really fosters a real seriousness and a real investment in people and that an investment in ideas is directly linked to an investment in people. The two are not separated. And I think that's what I learned from every interaction that I ever had with Prof. Peterson. I'm going to read a tribute that we wrote with Jill Bradbury, Kwezim Kize, for the foundational African writers book that looks at Peter Abrahams, Noni Jabavu, Sibusiso Nyembezi, and Sikiam Pashele. But I want to start with an anecdote of how Peggy approached me in 2018, firstly via an email, this is who I am, I'm thinking about this book, can we meet and talk? So we meet at Olives and Plates, and of course I had known of Peggy for the longest time because I've been in Joburg for the longest time, but nothing had ever brought us together around the same table. So I watch him walk in, looking around, and I just have fun watching him walk past me, and he makes a U-turn on the other side, and he comes back, and I said, are you looking for me? <laughs> and he comes and he sits down. And the first thing he says is, everybody tells me I should be talking to you about Noni Jababu because you say she was born in 1919. And I said, why did you believe them? People don't often believe things that are said about women. People don't often trust what women know. And we just laughed and we started the conversation. So he tells me about this book of his writers who had been born in 1919, who I knew about because I had been doing the work of Noni for some time by now. This is 2018 when he approaches me. And when I was doing the Noni project and learning about her, I was fascinated by the fact that these writers that I knew of had actually been born in the same time, in the same year as Noni Jabavu. So I knew their birthdays and everything and started reading their works more actively. Whereas Smusi Sonyembezi was somebody I had read in school because he wrote Inisizulu and that was my first language of reading. So that's how I got roped into being a co-editor because Peggy was concerned that they needed an editor who knew more about Noni if she was going to be part of the book so that I could, you know, work the, with the contributors where going to be looking at Noni. So as we all know, he dies before the book comes out in 2021, in June. And I just thought, why are you doing this to us? Anyhow, so the tribute reads as follows. I'll just do an excerpt. On the 15th of June, 2021, our beloved Begizizwe Peterson transitioned to the realm of the ancestors. A project of the scope and depth was only possible within the characteristically careful and capacious intellectual frame that he provided, and we are deeply thankful for this final gift from him. As he joins the four centenarians honored in this book, and many amongst those we call our ancestors, we feel this book speaks vividly to the vision and calling that he lived. Foundational African Writers is a living testament to his lifelong passion 
for restoring African writers to their rightful place as meaningful custodians and interpreters of the African experience. His vast and encompassing vision enabled the collection of these four foundational writers in one volume, placing their work in dialogue across time and space, exiled and at home, and crossing other boundaries of gender, generation, language, and territories within and beyond the academy. This was already a mammoth task, which was further complicated by the aspirational inclusion of contributions from scholars beyond the field of African literature, from education, politics, music, linguistics, and psychology. This would have been an unwieldy and fragmented collection without him as the linchpin, without his range of scholarship that traversed all these terrains. In gratitude, we dedicate this book to his living memory. Thank you. I am going to uh, read from a poem by B. Richardson, an African-American actor, actually, who's probably best known for her role as the domestic worker in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I dedicate it to Andre Pushabot, who's our empty chair for this episode, but also to Becky Zizwe-Peterson and Noni Jabavu. A black woman speaks of white womanhood, of white supremacy, and of peace. I speak not mockingly, but I fought for freedom. I'm fighting now for our unity. And what wrongs you murders me and eventually marks your grave so we share a mutual death at the hand of tyranny. I just want to say strength to Andre and his loved ones, and to Becky Peterson. May we continue to remember your name and to do the labor of recovering Black intellectual cultures that you spent most of your life taking up. Thank you to Makosa Zanakaba, Atambile Masola, uh, and to Penn South Africa. And goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Pan South Africa. We love it when our work goes into the world. Thank you to Victoria, Atambile, and Marco Sazana for this fascinating, invigorating, and intellectually rigorous conversation. Thank you for listening to this final episode of Season 7. We're so grateful to all our participants and everybody who has been listening to our Empty Chair podcast. We're taking a short break, but we'll be back with Season 8. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy all the beautiful episodes in our archives. We'd be delighted if you share the podcast with your friends and family to help us reach a wider audience. Thank you so much for your support. This episode was produced by Andre Bennett. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Boxbaum, 
to pen SA board members Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of PIN South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Molaudzi and Jahan Jones Radgowski for their support. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.